It's good to sing about our belief, isn't it? Sometimes uh, songs does help us to learn about our beliefs. And uh, this, this song is actually about the Apostle Creed making about what Christians actually believe in. And today, and over the next couple of weeks that has passed and to come until end of August, we are working through the book of Galatians. As you already know, this is a fourth sermon in the series. And the book of Galatians is about doctrine. It's about the heart of the gospel. It's about the heart of our belief. How are you saved as a person? How can you be declared righteous? How can you be stand before God and God look at you and say you are good? How can you be accepted by God and be declared righteous? And this is what the book of Galatians is trying to tell us. And the whole theme is freedom in Christ. That It is by believing in Jesus and not by the works of the law that we are saved and therefore we experience freedom in our lives. Freedom is not just free from constraint or restraint. Many people who don't have the constraint and restraint ended up doing things that they will be held in bondage anyway. So in that sense, it's not really freedom. Freedom is always doing what you ought and not what you want. And Galatians is that. So over the next until end of August, you will see us repeating this theme over and over and over again. How are you made righteous before God? This is the heart of the gospel. And we need to know. And not just that after three months pounding on this passage, that when you leave church, you will not just only believe that your salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. But don't just believe, but believe with great conviction. Great conviction. And so we've been plowing through. Uh, this is a fourth sermon. And the uh, heart of the Galatian message is Paul is trying to say, never surrender the liberty of our new life in Christ to the bondage of religious legalism. Don't surrender. You have experienced this freedom, this goodness. Why are you returning back to the religious systems and become legalistic and bound by it again? Why are you doing that? And so today, we are looking at the heart of the gospel. The first two chapters, Paul has to defend himself. Why he has to defend himself? Because he went to Galatia, he planted the church, he went through three missionary journey, and he planted in Galatia few churches. And after he left, there was this group of people known as the Judaizer, or the circumcision group as we call it. They infiltrated, they went to that place, and they said to them, you know what, don't listen to Paul. Yes, we believe that Jesus saves you. Yes, we believe that by having faith in Jesus, you are saved. But you also need to continue to observe the law of Moses and be circumcised. Remember, these are Jewish people, right? You still need to do that. Belief plus obedience to the law equal salvation. You must do that. That's what they're trying to tell this people. Don't listen to Paul. Paul is not really an apostle. So Paul then has to write this letter to this group of people 
And first and foremost, for the first two chapters, he has to defend himself. He has to defend his authority. He has to defend who he is. And he did it in three ways. Firstly, he said, my message, the gospel that I preach to you, is true revelation from God. It is not something that I dream up, sit down, stay in front of a computer, look into a sunset, and then come up with it and then tell it to you. No, it is being revealed by God to me. And secondly, not just only that the message is revealed by God, I also have been endorsed by Peter, by James, the half-brother of Jesus, and by John, the chief apostle, the pillars of the church. Last week, Pastor Caroline mentioned that. They, they endorse me. They give me the right hand of fellowship. They recognize me. So I have them on my CV. So you can recognize me as an apostle. So my word is from Revelation. I have this endorsement. And they have asked me to come and preach to the Gentiles. Because the gospel is going to the Gentiles, not just only to the Jewish people. Christ has come, and Christ has broken down every barrier, and the gospel is going out to the Gentiles. So I am the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter is the apostle to the Jew. I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I have their endorsement. I bring God's word to you. And today, he went on to solidify his authority by also highlighting to them that he had a public dispute with Peter over these issues. And then afterward, chapter 3 and 4, Paul is going to tease out, going to tell us why and defend why salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not through the observation of the law. So today, I have three points for you. Uh, first one is there is a confrontation between Peter and Paul. There's a confrontation. It's very interesting that... Uh, Paul went to visit Peter, and Peter extended a right hand of fellowship to him. But when Peter visited him, he confronted him. <laughs> he never reciprocated in the sense, because the issue is so important. There is a confrontation between Peter and Paul. And then secondly, there is a gospel message here. Paul reiterated again what the gospel message is. That it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the law observation. No. So he had to reiterate again. And then he has to go on to say, because if you preach a gospel of grace, naturally the objection is, does it mean to say that you are giving me the license to continue to sin? After all, God will always forgive me, I live by grace, and therefore that actually gives me license to sin. So Paul anticipates such kind of objection. And then the third point is Paul provides a remedy and says, no, 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 no. I'm going to tell you why it is not. So three points, confrontation. He reiterates the gospel. And then he provides the remedy of the objection that people may have to that gospel of grace gives you license to sin. So the first thing is uh, the necessary confrontation. John Stott, the late John Stott in his commentary, he said, this is without doubt one of the most tense and dramatic episodes in the New Testament. Why? Because here are two leading apostles of Jesus Christ face to face in complete and open conflict. 
When Paul visited Jerusalem, Peter gave him the right hand of fellowship. But when Peter visited Antioch, Paul opposed him to the face. But why Paul is opposing him to the face? Because Peter has been in Antioch for a little while. He has been eating with the Gentile believers. He break communion with them, spending time with them, which in the past, Jew, they don't mix with Gentiles because they feel Gentiles, they are dirty. They don't mix with them. We are the chosen people of God. We have the law. So we are the saved one. You are not. You are sinners. So they don't mix with them. But... Now, after Revelation, he experienced it in Acts chapter 10. Now, Peter spent time with the Gentiles. He ate with them. He had no problem eating pork chop and, and uh, ham sandwiches. He enjoyed the fellowship. They have a good love. They have a communion together. They meet for worship together. He has been doing this. And then, this group of people, this Jewish, the Judaizer, came from Jerusalem to spot check maybe, you know, to come. And then when Peter saw this group of people infiltrate into their group, Paul suddenly no longer mixed with the Gentiles. He suddenly felt either ashamed or afraid to mix with Gentiles anymore. And so he withdrew his fellowship. And because he withdrew mixing with the Gentiles, the rest of the Jewish people also joined him. Plus, Barnabas, as we just read, Barnabas who went for the mission trip together with uh, Paul. He, Barnabas, Barnabas was also led astray and, and withdrew completely. So there's a large group of people now suddenly no longer fellowship with the Gentiles. And so Paul has to confront him. This is what Paul says. Paul says, when I saw that they, meaning Peter and Barnabas and the rest of the Jews, were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Cephas is a Peter in Aramaic, in front of them all, he never gave him face in a sense, he confronted him straight on. He said, you are a Jew, and yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish custom? What basically Paul is saying is that you are a Jew, but then the gospel broke through. Christ came. You received the revelation about the Cornelius and all that in Acts chapter 10. You know that now gospel is going to the Gentile. And then now for the last whatever, however number of times that you have been there, you have been living like a Gentile. You mix with them, you eat with them, you fellowship with them. And, and you don't live like a Jew. How is it then... Now, you, force, you are trying to force the Gentiles to follow your Jewish custom that you have actually given up. Why are you now reversing and, and making the Gentiles return back something that you gave up a while ago? Because they used to enjoy fellowship together. Acts chapter 10, you can read about it. In Acts chapter 10, we read about Peter's vision. Remember, he visited Cornelius' home. 
where the Holy Spirit had told him that all foods were clean. Three times he had this dream, you know, saw this heaven, there's a sheet, big sheet, and then uh, there are animals there, four-legged animals, and then the voice say, eat it. He said, no, no, I can't eat all this food. Three times, eat it. And then ended up the vision, he confirmed that he knew that God has said what is clean, all foods are clean, you should eat it. Meaning to say now Gentiles has been grafted in. Gentiles now is part of it. So look at verse chapter 10. This is where uh, 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 Peter, Peter says this. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I, and after the vision, after talking to Cornelius, after he went to see Cornelius, who is a Gentile, he said, Truly, now I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And so, Peter saw the vision and therefore he went to Antioch, he reached out to the Gentiles, he had fellowship with Paul and the rest and all that, and then now this circumcision group came, he suddenly withdrew. That is why Paul has to confront him. Hey, you're not doing it right. You must understand that this was not simply a personality conflict. You know, many conflicts are personality conflict. Uh, for Paul, Peter's conduct, as he says, was not in line with the truth of the gospel. Can you read it in verse 14? When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. So this has to do with the heart of the gospel, the heart of the issue. I cannot tolerate. I can compromise other things. We have personality differences, the way we work differently, strategy different. It's okay, I can compromise on that. But when it is the truth of the matter, I will not compromise. Tolerance is a virtue, so is upholding truth. How many of us are willing to compromise truth just to have a superficial peace? But not Paul. Paul said, I can on other matters, but not this. Not this. This thing I cannot compromise. I will not forego truth for superficial peace, especially in doctrinal matters. I can defer on baptism. I can defer on speaking in tongues. I can defer on, on uh, 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 whether you are a post-millennial or a-millennial, whether you be, believe the rapture is before the tribulation or mid-tribulation or post-tribulation. Yes, 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 but not this. Not this. George Orwell said, in the time of deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. In the time of deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. Because now truth is stranger than fiction. Truth is stranger than fiction. And so Paul said, no, I won't. The gospel is this. I will not compromise even if I have to confront the chief of the apostle, Peter. I will confront him because he deals with the heart of the matters and it will affect the entire future of the gospel in that sense. You know, in every generation, we pray for reformation and revival. Reformation is the realignment of our churches with the doctrine of the Bible. 
You know, sometimes church, if you evolve, become a social club or something else that is de deviate from the heart of the gospel. And therefore, reformation need to come in to align, realign back the church to the, to the doctrine of the Bible, the church to the Bible. So reformation is realignment. Revival is refreshment. We also need revival. Refreshment of our churches with the power of the Holy Spirit. We need nothing more urgently than reformation and revival because we nullify the grace of God and diminish the cross of Christ sometimes without even realizing it. And we need courageous voices to constantly calling us back to clarity in the doctrine and abundance in the life of our churches. Legalism is not just a human problem. It is a human problem. And this in Antioch, it was an apostolic problem. Because that is our default setting. We like rules, we like laws, isn't it? So as to be in control, so that we know what to do. This is our human default position. It is by work that we are saved. You're going to behave, you're going to do this, 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 observe ten commandments, da, 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 da. Then you are saved. This is our default position. And all religion is like that other than Christianity. And so we must never think that because we subscribe to the doctrine of justification of faith, that most of us, when we became Christian, we just believe in Jesus Christ and we know we are saved. We... We must never think that because we subscribe to the doctrine of justification by faith alone, we are therefore above legalism and safeguard against its poisons. The example is Peter. Right? Peter can slip back to that. And you and I, we can slip back to that again and again and again. Because Peter knew the gospel, he loved the gospel, he encountered it, he had a voice, vision from, from, from God about that, and yet he still return back. How unwillingly legalism dies. It will resurrect again and again and again. And in a matter of time, your Christianity will become slowly, slowly become a pharisaical religion. It becomes a religion. It's no longer a relationship with God. When you slip back into, by law, by obedience, that you are safe. So the first thing is a confrontation that Paul had with Peter. Because he has, he's not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. And Paul needs to remind Peter of that. Secondly, we look at the true gospel. The true gospel is from verse 15 to 19. Here we come to the heart of the gospel. The true gospel. Paul spelled out very clearly in verse 16 that what is the true gospel? We can differ on some secondary theological matters. That's why there are denominations. You have Anglican, Presbyterian, you go Baptist, you have charismatic churches. There are denominations that differs on secondary matters. But for Paul, the justifying grace of God is another matter. Paul's point is that he and Peter may not differ about the justifying grace of God. How we are saved how we are declared righteous by God, that one we cannot defer, Paul says. It must be the same because it is the heart of the gospel. Cannot defer. 
Because Peter is slipping into nullifying the grace of God by complicating it with the law of God. And this is Paul's argument. Paul said, he's speaking to Peter and the rest. He said, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. He lumped these group, two group of people, he himself and the Gentiles. He said, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles. Remember, Jews, they call Gentiles sinful. Because they are not chosen people of God. They cannot keep the law. Why they cannot keep the law? Because they don't even have the law. So they are sinful Gentiles to the Jew. He said, they, they know they cannot be saved because they don't even have the law to keep, let alone trying to keep the law. And for us, he said, we also knew that we are not justified by the works of the law. How? In... Uh, in uh, Psalms 143, look at David's prayer. King David said, Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness, Lord, please come to my relief. Do not bring your servant into judgment. Why? For no one living is righteous before you. So even King David knows. No one living is righteous before you. And maybe Paul, being a Pharisee, he, he knows. He said, you, you know. Yes, you may have the law. You as a Jew, you may have the law. But you know jolly well that we too cannot keep the law. Because no one living is righteous before God. So Paul is lumping the two groups together and saying, We who are Jews by birth, and, and, and not sinful Gentiles, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Here comes the heart of it. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Why? Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, the word justified simply means you are declared righteous. You are just like a judge. You committed a crime or whatever. He declared you. Bah! 10 years in jail. Bah! You have to pay. Your fine is $20,000. You are declared. So the word justified means God declare you righteous. God see you as righteous. How? Not by the works of the law. Not by observing the law. But by faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone that you are declared righteous. Naturally, as I, as I, as I mentioned, naturally when Paul says that, he's straight away in his mind new, isn't it? That, uh-oh, they probably would think then, that means to say you are giving us license to continue to sin. After all, it is not by works that we are saved. And Paul is going to address that. Martin Lloyd-Jones, an old English uh, writer, he said that if you preach the gospel and that thought never enters people's mind, means you have not preached the gospel. 
you have to preach the gospel until that thought enters people's mind. Oh, does it mean that I have license to sin? Until that thought enters the person's mind, then you have preached the true gospel. Until that person asks that question, you have actually preached the gospel. You have not preached the gospel if they have not asked that question. Does it mean that you are giving me license to sin? The heart of the gospel, a great exchange. I gave this illustration about six, seven years ago about this guy called, for a Canadian called Carl McDonald. You can look him up. Interesting. Carl McKyle McDonald. He has no money, he has no job, and yet he wants to buy a house. How do you do that? No money, no work, but he wants to own a house. But he had one thing. He had one red little paper clip. And he put that paper clip on Craigslist. It's a website that you can exchange things. He put that anybody want to exchange this red paper clip? And uh, one girl in Vancouver offered him a fish pen ink in exchange for his paper clip. So he got a fish pen ink. And then he traded the fish pen for a doorknob. And then he traded the doorknob for a camping stove. And then he traded his camping stove for a generator. And then from a generator, he traded for a neon sign. And he continued this, his online exchanges. 14 exchanges in one year, and he got a house with a red paper clip. You can watch the YouTube. He show you what is it that he has exchanged. And you can see his house as well. Incredible. One little red paper clip. Maybe we should all try it. Maybe you can start a bit higher, not just paper clip. I mean, this is a great exchange, but my friend, our salvation, it pales in comparison to what we have exchanged. Jesus took our punishment, and he gave us his peace. He took our eternal condemnation, he gives us eternal life. He gave our death, we earn, and gave us justification. Jesus took our sin, and he gives us his righteousness. And then Paul not just only spelled out the gospel, he went on to say this. He says, remember the objection that people may have? He straight away answered it. He said, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves, if we say that if you say that we are justified, we are declared righteous by not observing this law, by not circumcising, by not observing all this ceremony law. We Jews find ourselves also among the sinners. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Paul said, No, absolutely not. 100% no, 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 no. God will never promote sin. On the contrary, he says, on the contrary, if I rebuild what I destroyed, meaning to say that if I rebuild again the law system that I've been living under, if I rebuild again what I just destroyed and return back to living by the law, then I will become a lawbreaker. Because definitely 100% we will keep breaking the law. It will never bring liberation, but only bondages. Why? For through the law, I die to the law, he said, so that I might live for God. 
Because the charge that Paul's doctrine leads to sin was made against him repeatedly by Jewish Christians, and therefore Paul has to counter this. Actually, when you really, when you really unpack it between what Judaizer says and what Paul says, you know what it comes down to? It comes down to arranging the order. You know, order is very important, just like cooking. Yeah, you want to cook something, the order is important, right? Certain food, I mean, I mean certain food you don't bother, you can all mix it together. But certain type of food, in order to make it good and right, you have to follow order. You have to put oil first, you have to put this, put this, wait for this, and add something in, you know. Order is important. And so the problem with Judaizer and Paul's gospel is that the order is is wrong. Let me show you the Judaizer's law and then you become clearer to you. It's not that obedience is not important. Obedience is important, but it's in different order. The Judaizer is basically saying you must believe in Jesus Christ and then you obey the law of Moses. You circumcise, you kept the ceremony and everything else that comes with it. You believe in Jesus Christ, you obey the law, then there is salvation. But Paul is saying, no. You believe in Jesus Christ's saving work on the cross. You believe, have faith in Him, trust in Him to declare righteous. Then you are saved. After you are saved, out of gratitude, out of joyful heart for what God has done for us, you obey Him. So the difference is the order. The obedience is still there but it's in different order because obedience doesn't save you. Obedience and work is the byproduct of your belief. That is exactly what Paul is saying. You believe first. When you believe in Christ's saving work on the cross for you, you are granted salvation. You are declared righteous. And then you move on to live for God. For Paul to give Moses even an inch is to give Moses everything. Moses meaning the obedience of the law. Eh? To give in to the Judaizer at all is to deny the gospel. A so-called gospel of Jesus Christ plus human merits or work or obedience is a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. So you have a confrontation there. You have the gospel once again, Paul reiterate, and he will continue to dish out in chapter 3 and 4 the defense of why justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He will play it out. And then now, or and then now he proposed the remedy. He said, all right, You are accusing me that preaching a gospel of grace gives people license to sin. Paul saying, no. This is why it is no. Because, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He is basically saying, you know what? 
this self-righteous Pharisee, all of his life that I've been pursuing after law, keeping the 613 laws and, and doing everything that I can to be holy, to be acceptable by God. This self-righteous Pharisee who based his hope for righteousness and salvation on strict observance of the law, this self-righteous Pharisee, this Paul, this Saul, is no longer enslaved by this thing. I've been crucified. I'm dead. The old self is dead. I no longer live. But now, Christ lives in me. Now that I ex believe in Jesus, accepted Him as my Savior, confessed my sin, repented of my sin, now the Holy Spirit reigns in my life, lives in me. The life now I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who gave himself. You see the gratitude there? The heart of gratitude, thankfulness in the, the voice, in the tone of the voice. Now I live for God. And now I obey Him because I want to honor Him. I want to live for Him. Live by law will lead to self-righteousness. Live by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, leads to gratefulness that will produce changes from within. Law, self-righteousness. Grace, liberation, inner life, gratefulness to God, produce true change from within. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Hamut, right? He said, being a Christian is less about cautiously avoiding sin than about courageously and actively doing God's will. When you live by law, you will be on the first part. If you live by grace, you just courageously and actively doing God's will. And when, you, when your focus is that, that thing will fall into place. You know, they say do the first thing first and then you get the second thing as well. You do the second thing first, you get neither. It's a little bit like this uh, poem that I read to the KYB group once before. He said, make, the title of this poem said, Make the Ordinary Come Alive. He says this. This person said, Do not ask your children to strive for extraordinary lives. Such striving may seem admirable, but it is a way of foolishness. Help them instead to find the wonder and the marvel of an ordinary life. Show them the joy of tasting tomatoes, apples, and pears. Show them how to cry when pets and people die. Show them the infinite pleasure in the touch of a hand and make the ordinary come alive for them. And then, the extraordinary will take care of itself. That means to say, when you do the ordinary things well, the extraordinary will come in without having to pursue that in a sense. And here, Paul seems to be saying the same thing, or Bonhoeffer seems to be saying, when you courageously and actively focusing on doing God's will and honoring Him, 
that things will take care of its own. Put the first thing first. And then the second thing will be given to you. You put the second things first, you get neither. And then Paul finished it off with this verse. He said, I do not set aside or nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Paul is trying to reason with them. Come on, put on your thinking cap and think with me. If you can achieve righteousness by observing law, then what is the purpose of Christ coming, dying on the cross? What is the whole purpose of that? If it is possible that we can attain or earn righteousness by observing the law of Moses, why did God in His grace send Christ to die for our sins? Why would Christ die for sinners? if we could be justified by means of circumcision and obedience to the law. He said, I do not, I do not, I don't want to set aside or nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. The cross itself is a picture of human helplessness. Why did the Son of God suffer such unspeakable agony if there were some other way? What was worse, to argue that as the Judaizers were doing, that justification came by faith in Christ plus obedience to the law, he's in fact saying that the death of Christ was not sufficient to save sinners from their sins. Isn't that true? If you say that Christ plus obedience of the law then equals salvation, you are saying that Christ is not sufficient. But we are saying that Christ worked Death on the cross is sufficient. A perfect human being, a Lamb of God who take away the sins of the world. It is sufficient. Someone said to me that uh, hearing the justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, over the pulpit is like listening to an old song that you have not heard for a long time over the radio. You know, sometimes you have not sung this morning at 5 o'clock, to be precise, it's 4.56. I was awoken up with a song in my mind, believe it or not. And I woke up and I played the song. I, in fact, I listened to the entire album of the entire song by Chris Christian, a very old and songs that minister to my heart at 4.56 in the morning. And here, Paul is saying, Christ is sufficient. It's like listening to an old song played over the radio that we need to be reminded again and again of this beautiful doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. It can, we can find rest for our weary souls and peace for our troubled hearts. No matter how bad things get and how difficult the struggles of life can be, 
once we are reminded that God's anger towards our sin has been dealt with once and for all by Jesus Christ in his life and his death for us, everything else comes into proper perspective. The doctrine of justification reminds us that in Jesus Christ, we have everything that we need, the forgiveness of sins and a perfect righteousness. Paul says it is freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And that is why the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is the heart of Christian faith. Christ has lived for us. Christ has died for us. Christ was raised for us. And through faith in Christ, my sins have been washed away. And Jesus Christ himself covers me with a rope of perfect righteousness. It is free gift, all of grace, received through faith in Christ, not by obedience to the law. This is the gospel. Anything else is not. In 1994, about 20 years ago, I was in Pakistan. We had an English school reaching out to the Afghan refugees in Islamabad, the capital of Pakistan. And come Christmas, we always put up a concert for, for them. And I will never forget my time there, one of the Christmas celebration. This elderly man, probably in his late 70s or 80 years old, from Scotland, he stood up. And he said to this group of Afghan refugees, he said, I have lived my life almost to the end. I've been young before. I know what it's like to be fall in love, to be last fool. I have met my girlfriend, married, have children, experienced many broken heart through life's failures and all that. But I stand here to tell you, and then he went on to sing this beautiful hymn. I said, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's drag sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Lord, 